we are going to pick back up in our study of the book of Acts. Uh, if you've been tracking along with us, we did it earlier in the spring semester. Um, took a break around Easter time, and uh, we're going to pick that back up at the end of chapter 4. If you don't have a Bible uh, with you, you can borrow one. We have some on the sides of the tech booth back there. Feel free to go grab one if you need to grab one. Borrow it, keep it, whatever you need. We'll be happy to buy more Bibles. If you're a user of the Bible app, you can find our live event right now and track along with the scriptures and sermon notes and other important information, okay? Uh, As we uh, get going here, let's pray. Let's ask for God's help, all right? Uh, Father, we're here before you now. And glad to be so, we come as your people, purchased, redeemed by the blood of Jesus, which we'll celebrate here in just a few minutes with communion. But God, we want to be an experience. We want to have this moment with you where you declare yourself our God in some sort of fresh way, where you speak to us in some sort of fresh and powerful way. And God, we as your people, we want to say to you, our, our commitment is in our heart's desire is to this that we wouldn't walk in this room one person and walk out the same person. But instead, because we have encountered you um, here and you have spoken to us through your word, we would come in this this room one person and walk out a transformed person, a different person altogether. So make that our reality now and do that for Jesus' sake and bring clarity and power to bear on us for the sake of the kingdom. And we pray that in his name. And everybody said... Amen. Amen. Okay, if you have your Bible, again, the end of Acts chapter 4 is where we're going to be. We're going to start in verse 32, Acts 4, verse 32. Just to catch everybody up, um, Acts 1, Jesus has come back from the dead. He has uh, walked with his uh, followers, and then he sends them back to Jerusalem to wait on the promised Holy Spirit. Acts chapter 2, Holy Spirit comes, wind, fire, craziness happening. and then uh, Peter preaches a sermon, and the, the, the church is, is born. 3,000 people become followers of Jesus in a single day. Um, Acts chapter 3 and 4, uh, the first part of 4, miracles continue to happen through the hands of the followers of Jesus, and it gets them in trouble, um, and so they have to work through all of that. And then from kind of Acts 5, basically through Acts chapter 11, we're going to see this kind of tenacity. Almost, I would actually use the word fearlessness by the church, as it continues to move forward um, in reaching the world with the good news of Jesus. Now, I say that today because does the world need less of a fearless church these days? Has the world just gotten so sane and okay that it needs the church to look at this and kind of go, y'all got it, we're good. Not at all. In fact, we need to be more fearless. The tendency might be um, is to kind of look into the situation that the world is in right now and go, ooh, let's, y'all be, do your thing. Just keep me away. But instead, uh, we get the opportunity and indeed we have the calling to step out and to live fearlessly. And so really we're going to see this kind of idea of fearless uh, uh, living happen over the next several chapters in the book of Acts. So in Acts chapter 4, at the end of Acts chapter 4, we're going to start in verse 32. Um, two different portraits of the church occur in the passage that we're going to look at today. One is the church being the church and it being awesome. I mean, it, absolutely unbelievable. The second one is the church. Anybody had this before where the church, something happened in the church and it was pretty squirrely? Church people can be weird sometimes. Who's with me on that? 
So uh, uh, we're going to see that also and see the outcome of that. But uh, let's talk about the church being awesome first. Chapter 4, verse 32. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. Just pause right there. When the church is being the church and the church is being awesome, one of the hallmarks of that is unity. There is this sense in which we belong together. You people over there, even though you're on the other side of the room, there's still family over here, right? They may look different. They may smell different. They may eat different lunch than you, but nonetheless, they're still your people. Um, you are one heart and one soul. And indeed, it, one of the expressions of it, it says at the end of verse 32, they didn't even uh, think that anything belonged to themselves. They just kind of were happy to share. So I uh, I got a friend sitting in the room. I won't call his name, but his name's Brad. And he says, anytime that I need a truck, I can call him. My truck is your truck. I mean, that's kind of how that goes. And so it's just sense of unity, right? Okay, that, that's when the church is being awesome. That's one of the hallmarks of this. Verse 33, and with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was on them all. So not only unity, but also witness, because unity is never an end in itself. The oneness that we experience in the body of Christ is never an end in itself. God doesn't want us simply to huddle and enjoy the unity. Jesus himself in John 17 prayed that we would be one, right? Right? so that the world would know. And that's where it comes to witness. Um, This unity then expresses itself and, and, and gives power to the witness. With great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. First part of verse 34. Uh, There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. So when the church is being awesome, there's unity, there's witness, there's good works that are happening here where uh, people see needs and they go, hey, I can meet that need. Hey, that person's lawn needs mowing. I think I'll just step out and mow their lawn. Hey, that person needs some help in some other way. I think I'll just step into that. There's good works that are going on. Uh, And lastly, verse 36, thus Joseph, uh, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. So there was a generosity that came with that. When the church is being awesome, there are some hallmarks. Unity, witness, Good works being done and a generosity. What do you mean by generosity? It just means that sacrifice was normal for them. It was a normal thing. Barnabas didn't have to sell. Other people didn't have. It was just a normal thing that they did. And they came and they laid it at the apostles' feet for distribution as they they saw fit. When the church is being awesome, those are things that are happening. And, and, And... good works and generosity begin to flow out of them, out of their unity and out of their witness. Now, if that, if that was the end of the story right there, that would be great. Like we could all go home and man, let's be that kind of church. And here's what I would say to us. Let's still be that kind of church. On occasion though, squirrely things happen in church. Chapter five. But a man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira 
sold a piece of property, just like Barnabas did, right? Sold a piece of property, and with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. So let's just be clear about what's going on, because what we're going to see is that the church, as this thing, as the rest of this story unfolds, the the church gets stunned by the things that happen, and we'll talk about why in just a moment. But um, Ananias and Sapphira, just like Barnabas, they're landowners. They've got a lake house lot, okay? And they, it's, it's worth some money. And they sold it for $100,000. And they brought $50,000 of it to the church and laid it at the apostles' feet. And we're like, here you go. Here, here's, here's the thing. Here's, here's the proceeds. Verse 3. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. So again, they sold the piece of property, lake house lot, $100,000, brought $50,000 in. That was never the issue. Their problem was not a realty issue. Their problem was an honesty issue because what they conspired together to represent, we'll saw it uh, hinted here in the story. We'll see it uh, a little uh, more fully explained later. But what they conspired to do was to say, oh, we sold the property and here's the entirety of the sale. That's the problem. Peter's very clear. You didn't have to sell the property. You could have kept it. Once you sold it, you didn't have to bring any money to us, but you did. But what we're not going to play is that you're bringing all of it to the table. You can't say one thing and do another. Their problem wasn't realty. Their problem was honesty. And look what happened. Verse 5, when Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last. Now that's an interesting church service, isn't it? Well, and, and, and... as if the Bible needed to be any more clear about this, the next sentence in verse 5, and great fear came upon all who heard of it. No kidding. You'll think a little more seriously when the offering plate passes you next time, huh? Stop. The young men, because burial was immediately, verse 6, the the young men rose uh, and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. So here's what I want you to get here, that that when the church was being stunned, the church being awesome is a beautiful thing. When the church gets stunned, sometimes squirrely stuff happens in the church and God kind of rattles our cage a little bit to make sure that he has our attention. It goes something like this, that dishonesty uh, led to discipline. Okay, You saw it here. They were being dishonest, and it led to the discipline of the Lord upon them and indeed the repercussions of that upon the church. And that discipline led to, and I don't know how else to say it, but to mega fear. And the reason I say mega fear is because it says in the middle of verse 5, and great fear, That's the, it's actually the Greek phrase for it is mega. Mega fear came upon the church. There was this sense of awe and this sense of fear, this sense of, man, we don't know who we're dealing with here. And we need to be careful about um, how we deal with him. If that were the end of the story, that would be enough. But verse 7, after an interval, because it was stunning enough for Ananias to fall over dead. Verse 7, after an interval of about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. Just for the record, where was she? Like, what was she doing? I don't know. She was shopping? Is that what you said? That's funny. 
Verse 8, and Peter said to her, tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, yes, for so much. So Peter, hey, we heard you sold the land, right? How much was it? It was $50,000. Verse 9, but Peter said to her, how is it that you have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? It's not a matter of lying to church leaders. It's not a matter of misrepresenting on the accounting. What is it? It's lying to the Lord. Behold, the feet of those who buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. Verse 10, immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. When the young men came in, they found her dead, and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard these things. Church being awesome is a beautiful thing. The church being stunned, it, it, it's, it's a world record. It's a, it's a cage rattler. And, and so I titled the sermon this morning, The Problem with Honesty. And I would say it this way, that the problem with honesty is this, that God expects it and we are inclined otherwise. Everybody in here has it in them um, to, to be a little less than honest in some way, some relationship, some uh, uh, expense report that you have to fill out, something that you, uh, whatever it is, right? God desires honesty, expects it, and we are inclined otherwise. Now, because he desires honesty and because he expects honesty, I think there are some things that are true, and I just want to highlight these, and then we'll move to the table for communion. Because God expects honesty, this is what Frank, I think, was alluding to just a moment ago, but because God expects honesty, he's given us a very honest book. What we hold in our hands here, folks, is an accurate record of how God's moved in the world, but it's also a very honest book. Like, he could have closed it with chapter 4, right? And the church was being awesome, and the world was being changed. Yeah! But there's chapter 5. Right in the middle of the church being an amazing thing and a beautiful portrait of grace and power and witness are these people, squirrely people, who do that. And I just I point this out. God gives us an honest book because um, you know, all the people that you probably can name from the Bible except Jesus have a little squirrely about them. Yeah? Like Abraham lying to not once, not once, two different times saying, Yeah, this lady here, she's my sister, even though I'm married to her. Like, that's a weird marriage relationship. You know what I'm saying? Uh, Moses was a murderer, had a little bit of an anger problem. Uh, David, he had his own issues. I mean, we could keep going, right? Can I just point out that the guy mentioned, who, who was the guy that they brought the money to? Who was it in chapter 5? Who was it? Who? Oh, Peter. Peter, the guy who disowned Jesus, denied Jesus to a little servant girl three times. Nobody's perfect, and I'm grateful that there's an honest book that tells us that nobody's perfect. You know why? Because every time I have lunch with one of you, I walk away thinking, man, nobody's perfect. <laughs> and I, I'm mostly thinking about me. I don't know why you're <laughs> You don't have a perfect pastor. We don't have a perfect church. You look down the road, there's no perfect people on the aisle. Nobody. But God gives us an honest book. And so when people say, and I actually had this conversation a couple of uh, weeks ago, people say, oh, I just wish the church would get back to the book of Acts. 
You mean like people falling down dead at the offering time? Maybe, maybe just maybe we want to be careful with what we're, maybe that's not all it's cracked up to be, okay? Uh, second thing, because God expects honesty, not only, and I'm grateful that he gives us a record of this, but secondly, we need to recognize that we have a foe who's deceitful. Jesus has a foe that is deceitful, and also so do we, because we are, are, are with him and following him. He faces a deceitful foe. The, that's what he says in verse 3. Look at it. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart? Why has Satan done this? The primary way that, that, that because God is a God of honesty and truth and rightness, the primary way that the enemy works is through deceit and lies and half-truths. How then do we defend ourselves against that? The Bible describes it this way in Ephesians chapter 6, that we take up the shield of faith by which we can extinguish the flaming darts of the enemy. How do we take up the shield of faith? Where does faith come from? Romans 10 verse 17 says, Faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the Word of God. So church family, listen to me. Let's be people of the book. Let's soak ourselves in it. Let's sit down with it. Just commit to sit down with it every morning. And, or at some point when you're alert, right, when you've got snap, and, and not just cruise through a passage or cruise through a chapter as if you're just flipping through, you know, scroll, 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 scroll. That's not where we're at, but we sit down and we soak in this because it's the truth. And it creates, generates faith in us by which we can extinguish lies. And so if we want to be people who aren't deceived, who aren't caught off guard by half-truths, who, who don't buy into the lie, we've got to be people of the truth and the truth is found right here. we got to be people of the Word. He faces a deceitful foe, God does, and we do along with Him. But we have the truth in front of us, and so we want to be people who take up the shield of faith and extinguish those fiery darts by being in the Word of God. Thirdly, because God expects honesty, He also desires honest dealings. In our relationships, um, in our accounting, um, in all of the places, He wants us to be honest. What we figure out is Ephesians 4.25 says we're just quit lying to one another because we belong to one another. What we figure out is it's a way better, it's a way, better way to live. It's a, it's a much better way to live, um, to, to live honestly. So um, it, we have, when the Bible calls us to and commands us, points us to honest dealing. It gives us a couple of things to help us along the way. It gives us examples to follow, and then it gives us kind of means by which we live this out, okay? So examples and means, those are two things that happen. Um, uh, we're dealing with um, uh, offerings and stuff here, and so I'll just give you, um, put this in context here. Um, when it desires honest dealings, and we have biblical teaching on this uh, regarding these money things, we've got examples here, right here. We've got Barnabas, Right? And we say, let's be like Barnabas. Let's let sacrifice be a norm for us. Let's uh, let generosity come right out of our hearts. Let, let's, let's let these kind of things be true about us. And we say, yeah, Barnabas. And then stick it right, sticking right next to Barnabas or Ananias and Sapphira. Let's not be like Ananias and Sapphira. Let's, yes to Barnabas, no to these other, because they're greedy and hypocritical and misrepresenting and all of these kind of things. They, they are they're posers at best. Let's not be like them. So we have examples, right, to follow. And we get inspired by them. 
or terrified of becoming like them. And so we commit ourselves in to live a different way. And when we do, the intention of our hearts needs some means. It needs, we need some rails to run on. And the Bible talks about this in multiple places. It talks about tithes and offerings, so regarding money particularly. It talks about tithes and offerings, tithing. We give regularly, systematically to the local church. 10% is the, is the tithing. It's the thing that we encourage around here as a church. 10% we give um, to do this. And some people give more. Some people can't quite make it, but they're working their way up. God bless all of you for all of that, okay? Um, and, and then offerings, other things that come along, like the sale of land or uh, leaving it in a will or an estate or something. There's all sorts of ways that this plays out today. Tithes and offerings. We've got examples to follow. Barnabas, examples not to follow. Ananias and Sapphira. And we've got these means. We've got these paths to walk on. Um, the reason I say that is because when we see these examples and when we follow these means, two, two things are true. Um, they are both diagnostic things for us, and they are directives for us. And again, I'll just use money since we're talking about it here in this story. Jesus said this uh, in Matthew 6.21, Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Okay? Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So what are we talking about when we're talking about diagnostic? This is a good thing for us. Um, we take the stethoscope, if we want to know how our heart, our, how our spiritual life is going, we kind of take the, spiritual, uh, the stethoscope of, of money and we can stick it up there and we can have a sense of how we're doing. Why? Because where our treasure is, that's where our heart will be also. And if it's in sync, we're going awesome. And if it doesn't seem right, then, then we go, golly, something's not right here. I'm spending this on myself. I, sacrifice isn't a normal part of who I am. Like, this isn't right. This isn't good. That's not good for my spiritual life. You want to diagnose your spiritual life and how you're doing. You look at the level of sacrifice, uh, particularly as it shows up uh, in how you deal with your treasure. But it's not only a diagnostic, but it's also a directive, meaning this, if I want to move my heart to somewhere, if indeed my heart is out of sync, then what can I do? I can allocate my treasure and my heart will come along with it. It's not just a diagnostic, hey, here's where you are. It's also a directive. I can, I can move my heart through the allocation of the resources and the treasures that God has blessed me with. It's diagnostic and directive. And so people are like, oh, okay, I see what you're doing here. You want us to give more money. Here's the thing. I, that's not what I'm after at all. I hope, you, I hope you give more money. I hope we as a church give more money than last year. Uh, the average percentage for um, uh, just Baptists is 2.5%. That's what we typically give to the church. I think we're better than that. I, I really do. I haven't done the numbers. I, don't, I think we're better than that. But I think we can do better. And we, we need to. Why? Because there's a Spanish-speaking congregation down the hall, and there's missions to go and support, and there's orphans in Bolivia, and there's a new staff hire that we got to get, and there's uh, all sorts of things that we want to do, right? The gospel needs to go forth from this place and from our church family. I hope we give more, but this really isn't about that at all. This is about us being all in. This is about us saying, God, you have conquered my life, and I want you to conquer the entirety of my heart. I'm not going to hold anything back. No space is not is going to have a sign outside that says, posted, no trespassing, God. I'm going to be all in. And we let God come into our lives and wreck it appropriately, and then transform us from the inside out so that he gets our hearts, he gets all the rest of it too. That's the call. The call isn't to give more money, it's to go all in. And to let him transform you, yes, and your pocketbook too, but yes, 
transform you so that we sacrifice. Sacrifice is a normal part of who we are. Because God desires honesty and expects it of us. He expects us to be honest in our dealings and in the diagnosis of our, of our lives and how we're actually doing. Uh, fourthly, because God expects honesty, He hates hypocrisy. That's the thing in Ananias and Sapphira. That story right there, that's the thing that I think he's all wound up about, is that he hates hypocrisy. The superficiality and the appearance-oriented approach to life, he does not tolerate. The harshest judgments pronounced in the Bible and the harshest words that Jesus himself said were saved for those who were hypocrites. One example, Matthew 23, he looks at a group of people and he goes, you know what you are? You're hypocrites. You're like a whitewashed tomb. You look great on the outside. Inside, you're full of death. Well, Jesus, thanks for coming to the birthday party. Uh, here's your parting gift. And uh, the harshest judgments and the harshest words were saved for those who were hypocrites. In this particular story, why? Why such brutality against Ananias and Sapphira? It's because it belies what the church is. It belies what the church could be. And then they are telling by their lives, they're telling lies, most importantly, about who Jesus is. The question on the table is, is he really worth it all? And by our lives, by our lives, we get to answer that question. Here's what I know about this, that you cannot get away with sin. Let me just, he may not strike you dead. I hope he doesn't. Uh, he may not strike you dead, but let's be clear. Nobody gets away with sin. Jesus is clear about that. So the pastoral question comes, well, I'm a hypocrite. What do I need to do? I've cheated. I've lied. I've done. The very fact that you're willing to admit that, is a sign that Jesus is at work in your life. And what you need to know is that no matter your sin, when you repent of it, confess it, turn to Jesus for it, He welcomes you with open arms. Because He didn't, he didn't die and then come back from the dead so that hypocrites could stay hypocritical. He did that so that we could be transformed, so that liars could continue to lie. He did it so we could be transformed, so those whose desires are out of whack could continue to live out of whack. He did it so that we could be transformed and be healthy and whole people who live with him until he comes back for us. The fact that you're admitting it means he's at work in your life and you take that to him. That's what you do. He hates hypocrisy, but he died and rose again so that we can overcome it and be transformed by him. Last thing, he aims at the level of the heart. And I just point you back to verse 3, but Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart? Not your mouth, he has filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit. And I think as I sat with this this week, the more I sat with this, the, the stronger this got. I think one of the reasons this particular passage got included uh, in the Bible was for suburbia. Because it really pushes on an orientation toward appearance before others, and it pushes on the importance that we place on possessions. Just sit with that for a second. Does anybody know anybody in suburbia who struggles 
with an orientation towards caring so deeply about what other people think of them or caring so deeply about what possesses them or what possessions they have that it actually possesses them. That You know anybody like that? I think those are two massive temptations here in our suburban context and in our lives. And so this pushes us, uh, us, those of us who live here in suburbia, it pushes us pretty hard in these areas of appearance and possessions. Um, And I say that to say this, that he's aiming at the level of the heart. He's pushing, he's going to be fierce about this. He's not going to let it just skip along uh, on the surface here. He's he's aiming at the level of the heart because he doesn't want us to live with the lie that, hey, appearances are all that matters or the stuff that you have is really uh, the sum of your life. He's pushing because he wants to lay hold of your heart. Peter Peter to Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to do this? If you think he's only after your money, I'll just tell you this. It's way worse than that. He's after your heart. He will deal fiercely with you in order to capture it. Because he wants it. He aims at the level of the heart. So here's a question. Is there something, as we get ready to move to communion, is there something in your life that you're holding back from him? Maybe it is money. Maybe it's something else. Is there something in your life that you're holding back from him? A key relationship, a a dream, whatever it may be. Is there anything that you haven't pushed on the table to say, God, here you go. This is all yours. It's all of it. It's yours. Because he is coming after your heart, folks. He wants so desperately to conquer that and capture that so that the rest of your life falls into line with him. Is there anything that you're holding back? If if we're going to be the church that is going to be part of this beautiful portrait of grace and witness and generosity, we have to go all in with him. That's the call. And that's why we see Barnabas versus Ananias and Sapphira. That's the call is to go all in. and We go all in fearlessly. and We suffer and we, um, yes, sometimes, and we sacrifice, yes, sometimes, but the thing that we don't do, we do not tolerate superficiality or substitutes for this. We're all in. Is there anything that you're holding back? Before we go to the tables, it'd be worthwhile for you to sit with that question for just a second. So let's have a moment to pray. As you sit with that question, Sometimes at the heart of that is, Jesus, can I really trust you with this? And the answer is a profound yes. 
Sometimes the question is, God, can, what kind of God are you that you would ask this of me? And the answer is found in this ritual that we do. First Sunday of every month, we celebrate communion. What kind of God would ask this of you? And the answer is the kind of God who's already gone all in to pursue you. Jesus came to the earth. He lived perfectly. He died as a substitute in our place. He didn't just die in a way that that made us able to bear the wrath of God. He died and He Himself bore the wrath of God in our place. He was our substitute. It was His body that was broken. It was His blood that was poured out. So you want to know what kind of God would ask these things of you? It's a God who's already gone all in to pursue your heart. And so we come to communion. We'll take the little wafer and remember that Jesus' body was broken for us. We'll drink the cup and we'll remember that it was His blood that was poured out for us that purchased our forgiveness. And I invite you before you go to the tables, examine your heart. God, is there anything, anything at all that I'm holding back from you? And if so, confess it. Give it to Him. And then go to the tables and remember that He's gone all in for you too. Holy Spirit, continue to work and do do so for Jesus' sake. Amen. Let's stand together.